Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is the 7th of June, and this is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge, except by the sound of my voice, you can probably tell he's he's not Carmen. Indeed, no. indeed, this is not exactly the normal Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings without Carmen LaBerge. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today, actually the rest of this week. And next week, it's two weeks off. This is the longest vacation, well-deserved, that Carmen has had. I think she's taken oh, over since, the soul yeah. for me in the morning, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, indeed. So great to be back with all of you. I think there is significant and, and understandable consternation, Paul Perot, that we might just break this show over the next couple of weeks. Don't, there's, there's don't, a, don't break don't, the show. There's just, a, just don't. A lot of reasons. So we'll check in with Carmen, I'm sure, along the way. But I'm so glad that she can have a good two weeks off here at the start of... Summer. I don't think she's going to check in with us because she's out in California. It's only like a little after four o'clock there right now. That's true. But she is an early riser. She true. is up reading the news and, and yeah, texting me probably. things about the news at very early probably. hours sometimes about yeah. that. She is. Uh, she does her work. That is for sure. Well, we got a lot to cover here today, Paul. It's going to be kind of an interesting morning the way it all worked out in terms of some of our guests and what the plans are ahead. And uh, up first, we'll talk with Zach Jen- Jenkins, who's a regular contributor to the show. He has been, yes. Yeah, epidemiologist. And we'll do some of the normal COVID headlines, although there's some pretty interesting developments in parts of the world, at least that I wasn't aware of. But it's going to beg the question, what is the course of this virus? I know it's been tamped down considerably mm-hmm. in a lot of the countries in our world, including the United States. But what do we see into the future? So we're going to start with him up next in just a minute or so. And then the second half of this first hour, uh, journalist David French is going to join us. And he is such an astute commentator on so many different things. And this is where it's going to get a little bit difficult because uh, Russell Moore, a theologian who I really do trust in terms of his view of things on so many different Mm -hmm. levels, he came out with an article that sort of peeled back the veil, as it were, behind the scenes of some things going on within the Southern Baptist Convention and some pretty disturbing allegations that just seemed to be one thing after another piling on about sort of the institutional church and, and where we are. And I think there can be this sense of discouragement that happens as we sort of go through these headlines over and over and over again about some of the, some of the failures. And, and yet, I think we can find some hope in that. But that's going to take us through the remainder of the show in a lot of ways, too, where we kind of swim in that river and, and circle around that theme a little bit. All right. And then we're wrapping up with your friend, uh, Justin. Indeed. Um, how do you pronounce his last name? I well, so I'm going to have to ask him about that because it's Jepson, but it's spelled Jepson. J-E-P-P-E-S-O-N. So I'm, I'm constantly it's calling like him Jepson. Extra yeah. e in there really tr- no, I don't of- know. You know, but I bet there's a lot of our listeners, right, that probably had some sort of origin story from somewhere in Europe or, or Africa or Southeast Asia. And, and, and names change when they take on sort of this American English vernacular. True. So maybe I'll have to ask him about some of his etymology of why he actually should have three syllables in his name instead of two. Of course, Kapsner is not a great name at all. It's got a P and an S and an N. I don't know who put those consonants That's together. A that makes thing. absolutely That is such a German thing. No sense at all. Justin and I will talk a little bit about an upcoming podcast launch that we're doing called The Current Kingdom that actually will be a little bit about the future of the church and what it means to live in Jesus's beautiful kingdom in today's 
day and age. So it's a big, uh, big show ahead here on the 7th of June. Super glad to be with you again in this host chair. And if you want to write in at any point this morning about any reactions or questions, comments, anything you'd like to address here this morning, you can do so on the text line at 877-933-2484. And Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University will be up next. It's time to bring Dr. Zach Jenkins into the conversation this morning on Mornings Without Carmen. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. So I asked you off air because you do some teaching at Cedarville University. If you are at that season where you're basically sitting back with your sandals now, sipping iced tea, the students are away, but you uh, have a significant other job besides teaching. Yeah, so my responsibilities actually... uh have me taking care of patients at a hospital, and that is usually about 60 to 80% of my time. And what do you see as is, is the hospital? Obviously, it can't be anywhere near as busy as it would have been a year ago at this time. Uh, well, it's busy in different ways. So as far as like COVID goes, our numbers have actually continued to decline, which is a really good sign. But we have a lot of other things that have gotten a little bit backed up. So a lot of, you know, uh, elective, assert, elective surgeries that were kind of held off due to COVID. Um, but then, you know, our regular run-of-the-mill situations with patients, as the weather gets warmer, people tend to show up. <laughs> well, and as we're seeing the numbers down, as we referenced at the start of this hour here, at least in our country, there are other parts of the world that maybe didn't experience a big spike early on, but now certainly are experiencing just that in places like Malaysia and in Vietnam. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing here in this part of the world. Yeah, so with regards to the U.S., obviously our numbers have continued to decline, as well as hospitalizations and deaths. But other parts of the world that early on in the pandemic weren't really dealing with some of the issues we were are now starting to have problems. So right now, one of the biggest uh, centers of infection in the world is Southeast Asia. So India, we've heard of recently, but now we're dealing with Malaysia and the Philippines and, and some of those Southeast Asian countries. And the challenge there is that their rate of infectivity is much larger given the small number of people in their population. So the challenge they're running into is they're running out of medical resources in some circumstances, and they're also having issues getting a hold of vaccines. The same is very true for all over Africa, Africa for example. And I, th- I think what's important to recognize is in the U.S., we're, we're talking like, you know, about 70 percent of us have had a dose of a vaccine. But in other parts of the world, it's much, much less. Actually, worldwide, only about 11 percent of the world has received a dose. So if there had been a more pervasive dosage of vaccines in some of these countries, was the thought that you locked down your, your the, the situation until you had the vaccine? I've heard this a lot. And then once everybody gets vaccinated, then the virus, if it does show up, it's probably not going to have a lot of places to take root. But but clearly then this was a failure in this instance. What, was it a failure of just not having enough vaccination or does the virus kind of work its way around the vaccination to find the people that it's going to infect anyway? I mean, what what is your insight into this? So one of the issues these countries have dealt with is, you know, early on they were lauded for their success in, in really containing the virus. But containment always has the, this possibility of, of something slipping through. And that's certainly what's happened in some of these Southeast Asian countries. And, and so after a little bit gets in, if people have been kind of locked down and, and not really interacting with each other, you can imagine that it's still going to spread 
uh, when when they're kind of returning to some level of normalcy, and that that's what's happened in these inst- in these instances. But when it comes to the vaccine, I think the the issue there is um, right now we have many many resources at our disposal in the U.S. as well as some other more industrialized nations to make different vaccines. So even though we're releasing the product, we also have the resources. Some of these countries don't have the materials that they need to make their own vaccines. So they're relying on the rest of the world to get them that supply. And I did notice that uh, President Biden announced that they are going to go ahead and uh, begin to donate some surplus vaccine overseas, some 25 million doses. Feels like a bit of a drop in the bucket, but a, but the right direction to begin to distribute some of the vaccines if we're doing well enough here to places that really need it. Yeah, and, and that's that's certainly kind of a, a move I think that most of the world is moving towards and, and something we need to do only because as the virus has the opportunity to circulate more throughout the world, it has the opportunity to spin out more mutations, which can eventually escape vaccination and natural immunity. So to everyone's benefit, it makes a lot of sense to leverage our resources that way. What are we seeing right now, Zach, related to the durability of the response? I mean, I know we're still pretty early in the early innings of this vaccine and people being dosed. You referenced about 70 percent of our country has at least one dosage of the vaccine. Are we seeing a fairly durable response in terms of length of time that people can have immunity? Because it it seems like we would need to continue to then stockpile vaccines well into the future if there's not a, a significant durable response. So that's a great question. Early on, a lot of our data that was coming out was suggesting that the vaccines were maybe about 95, 96% effective. What we've seen since they've been used in practice, actually Israel has some great data that uh, that has helped us see this, is that is kind of the real world finding. So it's not just kind of the, the study finding, it's a real world finding. And the good news there is it seems to persist. So there's data that was released uh, from Pfizer as well as Moderna that suggests that the efficacy remains well above 90% past six months. And with that kind of trajectory, there's a good chance it's going to outlast natural immunity even, which on average lasts about six months. So the good news is I think these are very potent. With having sort of the general four available vaccines, at least in the Western world at this point, I know there's other countries developing their own vaccines. Is there still a push to develop new kinds of vaccines at this point, or are we going to kind of wait it out and see if there are different mutations that require a different kind of vaccine. I, I just I haven't read much about other pharmaceutical companies that are also developing yet another vaccine choice for, for the Western world. So mo- most of the vaccine companies that were working on a vaccine have either dropped out or have moved on to helping other, com- other companies assist with their production of a vaccine. So a good example is Merck. So that pharmaceutical company tried the, their vaccine, didn't seem to work out in their in their actual studies. And what they've since done is they've partnered with Pfizer to help produce more of Pfizer's vaccine. So we're seeing a little bit more of that kind of movement. With regards to some of the other vaccines, like uh, China's Zinovac vaccine, for example, they really haven't had nearly the same level of efficacy data. And even China has openly admitted that. And so for that reason, um, we're, they're still using them in other countries, but they're really trying to hope that Things like AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, et cetera. Those vaccines are a little bit more prob- a little bit more available in those parts of the world. Talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University this morning about all things COVID. And Zach, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, just change the subject a little bit about the conversation of the vaccine and long haul symptoms. I'm curious what is happening because more and more people sort of seem to have this long haul COVID. And should they get vaccinated in the midst of it? Should they not? And also, too, for as the vaccine is becoming more readily available to young people in particular, we're seeing some 
evidence of some heart issues. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that here next on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to the show. We're chatting with Zach Jenkins about some of the different headlines in the world of COVID. And Zach, I'm curious what we're seeing right now in terms of any of the studies of of the vaccine and getting vaccinated in the midst of continuing to have symptoms. I know that I have some friends of mine that some nine months after having COVID still are out of breath relatively easily, can't do the same kinds of things that they used to do. I know that there's so much inflammation that happens from a from a systemic organ standpoint when you get COVID, and sometimes that can persist for quite a while. Should people that have long-haul symptoms get the vaccine? Do they have the antibodies? How do we sort this whole thing out? So it's a good question. There, there was some concern raised a little bit early on uh, with, with COVID long-haul syndrome, as, as people are starting to call it, that if we were to receive a vaccine, it actually may amp up sort of that autoimmune response that COVID almost triggers that that is causing some of those issues. And what we've seen with some recently released studies is that doesn't seem to really be the case at all. So the good news for us, it means if you have long haul COVID, it actually is still very possible for you to receive a vaccine. Um, As far as what we know about long haul COVID, we're still gathering more data on that. Uh, the most common thing people deal with is fatigue. But as you said earlier, there's a good chunk of people out there. My brother-in-law is one of them who still struggle with breathing months after COVID. And that's a that's a tricky situation for people. Are, are we seeing much therapeutic intervention that has been effective when people have some sort of long-haul symptom? You know, that's that's an area, I think, a study that we need to invest a little bit more time into. And, and honestly, most of the things that have been done so far haven't shown too much of a benefit on that. There have been some trials of steroids, but we really don't know when steroids are helpful, what the right doses are, if they're helpful. So there are a lot of big questions that, that really need answered there. And for somebody like me, Zach, who had COVID a couple of months ago now, and I don't have any, thankfully, I don't have any long haul symptoms related to it. But we were talking earlier about the durability of response related to the vaccine. Do we see any kind of similar data for those who have antibodies now related to COVID? Is there a durability of response similar or different to the vaccine? So as far as just general immunity, it tends to last anywhere from three months to eight months. Um, Most of the data seems to lean that direction. Now, as far as what the antibody levels are that would confer that same level of immunity, we actually don't have the perfect idea of what that number would be. Um, What we're trying to do is pay more attention to severity of infection if people are reinfected at all. And so thus far, I would say the data seems to support natural infection is not a bad pathway um, for, for a lot of people when it comes to that. But we don't have the best way to compare those directly. And as the vaccine is becoming more readily available, it, the, the age is being dropped over and over again to maybe 18 and now 15-year-olds uh, can get, go ahead and get the vaccine. And Zach, I have a 21-year-old at home. I have three teenagers at home on top of that, uh, as well as an 11-year-old. And my wife and I are asking some questions about uh, vaccination for them, especially when you see that uh, maybe young people are responding differently to the vaccine. I hear stories about young people having a much more robust uh, response, meaning that they get a lot sicker because their immune system is is quite a bit stronger than maybe mine is at the age of 50. And, and for them, uh, we're starting to see potentially some heart inflammation and other things. Are, are, is this overblown a bit? Do, are there things that we need to worry about statistically when we're giving the vaccine to younger people? Or is it something that we should probably practice? How do we sort through that part of it? So, so all really good questions. 
there was recently some data that was coming out about some very young people, those under the age of 18. So 16 to 18 is kind of the range we're looking at here. They had developed some inflammation around their heart. And, and what we know with COVID is that COVID can actually cause that itself in, in younger adults. We, we've heard that a lot with athletes who would actually have this heart inflammation. It would make it very, very hard for them to engage in sports and things like that. Well, we've seen similar things for people that have received the mRNA vaccine, but it's a very small number of cases that have been reported. And we don't know for sure that the vaccines are the cause. Now, I, if I were to make a, an educated guess, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised if the mRNA vaccines did contribute to heart inflammation there. But I don't want to make, make a firm statement on that since we don't have any studies showing that just yet. Um, even so, the question kind of comes up about whether or not if you're you know, over the age of 16, should you be concerned about getting the mRNA vaccines? The answer is most likely no. Is there a chance you could have some heart inflammation? Yes, but it's very treatable in those situations. And the chance is probably very, very, very low when we look at the actual raw numbers. Um, so it's a, it's a good question to have. It's something to really consider. I think what it does really bring up, though, is we have to start asking, are the doses that we're using, is the regimen that we're using for most people the same? Should it be the same across all age groups? And, and I think that's a, that's a big thing we need to dig into. Maybe it's a one-dose regimen for, for younger adults who seem to respond very profoundly to it. Um, and it seems like the second dose is usually where we've seen that, that heart inflammation in those rare circumstances. Maybe the doses need changed a little bit. So those are the questions we need to find. Yeah, that's something that I'm sure in your field you've seen quite a bit in these last 30 or 40 years is that uh, we don't want a one-size-fits-all approach to therapy inter, uh, intervention that, that taking into account demographics and saying, boy, maybe this age or this age or this gender needs something different and it's not just a one-size-fits-all approach. Exactly. They're already talking about having the dose of pediatric shots. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops moving forward. One more quick thought on that. Uh, the mRNA platform, that is Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, is that correct? Uh, mRNA is Pfizer and Moderna. Oh, it's Pfizer and Moderna. So I had those uh, reversed on that. And they're developed somehow differently than the RNA ones. Uh, so, the, so the mRNA ones are, are the ones that are going to help your body basically photocopy the protein from uh, the, the virus using RNA. And the other ones use kind of this virus intermediary where they kind of plug some data into that, that other cold virus and infect you with that. Uh, Paul, we just had somebody text in with a question here. You want to read that question for Zach? Yeah, Zach, this was texted in. If you, the question is, if you've been vaccinated for COVID, can you still contract COVID and test positive for it? So can you still contract COVID? It's possible, but it's pretty rare that most people do. In fact, uh, when you look at breakthrough data, the government stopped tracking it because the cases were so small. I mean, we were talking maybe around April. It was only a couple of thousand cases in the United States of people that had a second infection. And the good news in those circumstances is the severity was greatly reduced. So there, there were no real deaths or hospitalizations associated with those, or at least a very few uh, cases. And so that's actually what the government's paying a little bit more attention to right now is what's the incidence of those. Where we need to be concerned is if we start to see those particular numbers rise, that's t that starts to tell us the vaccine's not working. But really cases uh, of reinfection have been really minimal. 
Zach, we have just about a minute left here, and I'm just curious, as we see the roads jammed up with people, at least in my neck of the woods again, it's a Memorial Day weekend, it was like we never even had a COVID epidemic in terms of the people traveling and camps in summer. Uh, any quick advice about what to do this summer related to our own travel plans? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just going to come out and be transparent up front. So I, I recently traveled with my wife for our first vacation in quite a long time. Um, so, so really, I think the biggest thing to pay attention to is different states are handling guidance differently from the government. So you have to be aware of that before you travel. Some states still have ordinances in place, some cities do, where mass social distancing, et cetera, are still something they're paying very close attention to. Other parts of the country, it's a little bit more open. And, and so really, at that point, the airlines are the only thing that they're really kind of requiring you to wear masks, et cetera, if you've been vaccinated. Interestingly, I did discover if you, you do any kind of travel by boat, the Coast Guard still has full requirements in place. It's uh, amazing, right? Well, <laughs> Paul, that's going to take uh, take out of uh, out of play the idea that you and I could sail the Atlantic this summer. Yeah, that's that's out. I'm sorry, <laughs> Zach. So helpful this morning. I appreciate all the wisdom and insight, and just helping us navigate where we are in the different parts of this COVID pandemic. Have a great rest of the day and the summer ahead. All right, thanks. You too. We'll take a short break and do some bottom of the hour news here in just a minute and then come back and talk with journalist David French about some of the disturbing headlines that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as maybe how to avoid some political violence into the future as our country is so divided in so many ways. So stay with us. More to come this morning on Mornings Without Carmen. Paul, it was fun to even hear the idea of possibly traveling a bit this summer. I mean, with obviously with, with some caution and certain levels mm-hmm. and an awareness of what might be happening in different states in our country. But the idea that Zach, our guest just now, is talking about traveling, it just it, there's a normalcy that uh, I'm it experiencing. Is, even yeah. at Little League games with my son right now, when we sort of opened up the field at the Little League games, there was still most of us wearing masks and trying to start out. This last night he had a game and it was you know, 95 degrees, but there's almost nobody in masks anymore. And, right. and it's just interesting to see this normalcy develop again yeah, it's been interesting you know you're going shopping and such i mean first couple of weeks after the mask mandate here in the state of minnesota was dropped and most people still had masks right now maybe like 10 percent. yeah yeah and i'm mindful of the many people who are deeply impacted over these last 18 months by this yeah. pandemic that their yeah. lives have been inalterably changed on that and so in the midst of the sorrow and the suffering and this hope and and i think that brings us to where we're headed next in this this half hour of the show when we start talking with david french about the future of the church there is sorrow there are things mm-hmm. that we need to address that there is reform that has to happen but in the midst of it we'll find some hope too so stay with us we'll talk with david french next about some of the things that came out of the southern baptist convention recently in the revelations of russell moore are you living an either or kind of life or both and hi i'm mark gregston with parenting today's teens After decades of working with troubled teens and their families, I'm convinced that life is rarely an either-or thing. It's rarely easy or difficult, fun or challenging. It's always both at the same time. The trick is to keep the good and bad in perspective. Remember that challenging issues are just a normal part of everyday life, and tough issues won't last forever. Be on the lookout for things to enjoy and reasons to laugh. When you learn to smile, even when you have reasons to wince, you're choosing to live a both-and kind of life. And that's a far better choice. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. 
Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to the show here on the 7th of June. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmela Burge this week and next. And delighted to be joined by David French right now, who is a political commentator, regular contributor to the show as well, is a senior editor of The Dispatch, been a civil rights lawyer, a lot of other things in life, and writes regularly great stuff that you can uh, take in week in and week out, go to his blog, all sorts of different spots. Good morning, David. Good morning. Great to have you on the program. I know that uh, one of the headlines that we're going to need to talk through a little bit is some of the allegations, some of the revelations perhaps coming from theologian Russell Moore about how he was treated in at least his perspective of how he was treated behind the scenes at the Southern Baptist Convention and some disturbing allegations. But before we go there, David, because these are some hard things that were said, uh, as we we go into this, we are going to note that God's kingdom is is not under threat at all, right? I mean, God's kingdom is going to remain, it's going to persist, it's sovereign, all of those things. But there are evidence all throughout history, uh, even including scripture at the nation of Israel, that the people of God really mess these things up from time to time. So the kingdom's not under threat, but boy, we are undergoing some pretty rapid change and evolution in the expression of Christianity in our country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, somebody pointed out on Twitter, Speaking about, you know, that this is something even in Scripture that we see, that, that, that the Apostle Paul sort of had two kinds of epistles, one where he's talking about how we are heir, uh, heirs to the unimaginable grace through, you know, in the unimaginable glory of God um, is one type, and then the other one is, can't you people be normal for five minutes, please, I'm begging you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, there, the you know, Paul was dealing with pretty pretty terrible misconduct in the church that he pretty frankly lays out in Scripture. And so, you know, that's one of the things about the Bible is that it shows us it's not some sort of myth-making document. It is it deals with people as they are in all of the raw and, and terrible ways that people can behave. And and it provides us with a guide and, and gives us a you know, confidence that his kingdom perseveres even through uh, the sins of God's people many times. It's mm, a good insight, David. And before we get into some of the allegations again of the Southern Baptist Convention, just thinking about the letters of Paul that you bring up like that, that those letters, he was a missionary on the fly, right, in the Mediterranean world, in the Gentile world, and he would plant a church in one of these cities like Thessalonica or Corinth or Ephesus, and then he would get a messenger about what was happening in those churches. And it was quite a bit of a zoo, uh, a bit of a Wild West yeah. in some of those churches, right? So he wrote a letter back to address some of the circumstances. Any any sense that if Paul were alive today, what might be the letter to the Church of America that he would need to write if he was somewhere else in the world and, and hearing about what's happening here? You know, one thing that he would write about, I think, is he would write about the celebrity culture that we have cultivated in the church and how we are creating brands and corporations and industries surrounding people and how there there how many more times do we need examples of individuals who sometimes seem to believe as if they can ha- they can behave however they want to behave. And even any sort of act of accountability for them is an affront, not just to their ministry, but to the gospel, where accountability, they time and time again, is being uh, shunned, and people reject accountability because they 
have grown too powerful for accountability. And, and we are seeing this time and time again. We saw this in the, the terrible Ravi Zacharias scandal. Um, this is where, you know, the, the fact that he was so effective for the gospel was used to protect him from inquiry. And um, people were abused as a result of uh, granting him the level of impunity that he was granted. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about the way we elevate people and we elevate brands and we elevate ministries um, and, and create a culture of greed and power. Yeah, I, let's stay on that for just a minute, David. I think it's such an important insight. And, and maybe a, I would love at least your take on the idea of is this a blending of some of the cultural values in which we find ourselves of sort of free market capitalism and, and enterprise where uh, you are trying to build a brand or you're trying to build a business related to something. You and I are both uh, pretty big NBA fans and we see the players of the National Basketball Association leveraging basketball sometimes to build their own brand, whether it's LeBron James or uh, whether it's Dwayne Wade, some of these these figures use basketball for their own personal gain. It doesn't sound like it's that much different when we're talking about these celebrities within the Christian ministry realm. They're almost using Christianity to build their personal brand. So it's just—it's not just a blending of Christianity and commercialism. It's a hostile takeover <laughs> of of Christianity by sort of this commercialism and this branding, and really uh, profoundly secular concepts of marketing and profoundly secular concepts that are, you know, essentially teaching Christians, especially Christians who reach sort of a tipping point of wealth and power, um, that in, in many ways, their personal success is inextricably tied to the success and the prevalence and the power of the gospel, and which is completely contrary to the way of the cross. Uh, in, in, and yet, you know, that that seduction of power of money um, is so omnipresent in any in any uh, kind of enterprise, including enterprises that are dedicated to spreading the gospel. That any kind of enterprise where people obtain a certain level of fame, they have to watch their hearts, they have to guard their hearts. But yes, uh, you know that commercialism has, and that that celebrity culture that our that our country is so prone to and so prone to sort of that obsession with celebrity, it has absolutely infected the church. And I think at times, uh, on being on the inside of, of churches and ministries from time to time in the course of my life in ministry, that it's, it's perpetrated by the ministry itself. I remember I was part of a, of a fairly large megachurch on the pastoral staff of that church, and the church was moving from one location to another, and they really did decide in their move a couple of things. They wanted to move where the population base was growing, where they'd be able to grow the church demographically because that city right. itself was growing. And then I remember specifically, David, there it was a very powerful voice from the pulpit that was happening, and great teaching was going on. But some of the staff was saying, we need to build our whole ministry around this voice. And right there, I think, is what you're talking about here, right? Is that you, you yeah. have this person who might have this charismatic leadership and, a, and a, an authentic gift from God, and then we use that and decide to build a ministry around it. So I guess a couple of questions in that, if you could comment about that part of it. But but what is the, how do we rectify this? How do we do something different besides building around a voice and building a brand? Well, you know, one of the first things we have to do is um, <laughs> I wrote I wrote about celebrity culture many, many months ago. And I said that, you know, there are two things that have to happen at once. And um, one is that, you know, preachers have to stop thinking of celebrity pastors and uh, have to stop thinking of themselves as sort of like 
gods on Mount Olympus and the church, the average everyday person has to stop treating them in such a way. Um, you know, we, we, the, you know, average everyday person in the pews has been, has sort of bought into that celebrity culture hook, line and sinker and it, and it feeds the ego. So, you know, it's sort of two, it's a two way street. One is stop the self promotion, this relentless self promotion. And the other one is stop falling for it. I mean, we're in kind of a atmosphere and I was talking to somebody the other day who's a who's really just a very potent evangelistic voice and a very humble person. And he was talking about how often you'll see uh, celebrity pastors roll into conventions uh, or revival type meetings, you know, uh, to to use celebrity lingo, like they're rolling five deep or rolling 10 (laughs) deep with all of their staff around them, sort of as a shield, keeping them away from the people because, you know, they, you know, that, and, and, putting themselves into their green rooms and isolating themselves. And when they're supposed to be, you know, um, servants, ultimately, they're ultimately servants and yet they're, they're treated as celebrities. And, and it act, it, it, it has a, um, it works on the mind. It works on the heart in a particular way. And you see it just time and time and time again, where people will tie their, fate and their prominence to the gospel itself to the point where, you know, what, what will then happen, even the people around them, and it, 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 even in the people around them, like we learned with Ravi Zacharias and we've learned with so many other scandals, the people around them derive their own income and their own influence from the prominence of the celebrity. So they're the last people who are going to hold them accountable to anything. They're the last people who are going to hold them responsible for their actions because their fate is tied to the celebrity's fate. Yeah, I think what you just said, David, is one of the most important points we can make about that, that there are incomes and livelihoods associated with the celebrity culture as people are sort of building their brand and, and there's financial success associated with that where the church is growing. And and there's the, the thing about it is what you you can't protect somebody forever, right? And, and there's going to be the pulling back and seeing the man behind the curtain at times. And that's what we're walking in more and more and more as a culture. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I'd love to get into that a little further in terms of what happened sure. behind the curtain of the Southern Baptist Convention, but then also, too, what is the pathway forward where we can start restoring health and wholeness of the kingdom? So more with David French coming up here next here on Mornings Without Carmen. So timely to have David French on the show this morning as we're talking about some of the things that were happening just behind the scenes in church ministry in general in our country as there's a, a pretty significant sea change going on in the expression of God's kingdom in our world. And David, recently here, uh, respected theologian Russell Moore came out uh, and, and penned a letter in which he talked a little bit about at least his experience behind the scenes of things like racism and abuse and some just outright cruelty, again, using his language that was going yeah. on behind the scenes in the Southern Baptist Convention. So give us a sense of what he was articulating here. Yeah, what happened is that there were a couple of letters that leaked into the public domain over the last few days. One of them was written more than a year ago to his own board of trustees at the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he talked about his treatment after he tried to raise a couple of issues uh, within the SBC. One, dealing with accountability for sexual abuse the other one dealing with trying to attempt to continue racial reconciliation within the SBC. And in the first issue regarding sexual abuse, there had been a number of very high-profile scandals within the church, including 
some allegations made against, you know, staff and, and people surrounding the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention itself. And uh, he was what he was trying to say and talk about was how he tried to raise these issues and to elevate these issues and was relentlessly attacked, not just that he was relentlessly attacked for doing so, but the victims themselves were attacked. I mean, called to whores, uh, crazy compared to Potiphar's wife. And this were, these weren't just Russell Moore's allegations. There was a, a report at the Washington Post, Sarah Pulliam Bailey, who said that there, she received corroboration of key details and, and Moore's allegations from a number of people, um, at least three current SBC employees, one former employee, uh, outside lawyer and activist, uh, victim, and uh, that raises this really disturbing claim that, again, not, not everybody within the leadership of the Southern, Southern Baptist Convention, but several people within the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention were remarkably hostile to victim, victims of sexual abuse. And so, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, an entity, any Christian entity that receives allegations like this, I think that it's incumbent to immediately commission an independent investigation. In other words, retain an independent investigator, as the Ravi Zacharias ministry ultimately did. It should have done it earlier, but it ultimately did it, um, and is to retain an independent investigation to take a very hard look, because those are serious allegations and serious claims. And I know that there is um, there are those who are intending at the Southern Baptist Convention coming up in the next couple of days to make that motion on the floor to, to commission an independent investigation. I think it's absolutely imperative, uh, you know, get the results, make an independent investigation, uh, get the results, make them transparent to the public, and then hold people accountable if, there's, if, if these claims are found, uh, you know, to be supported by evidence. And I know, David, as what we find behind the scenes to whatever degree that he has an accurate representation, it is just part of what seems to have been almost this veritable flood these past uh, 10, even 20 years, uh, various scandals and and hypocrisy behind the scenes. And I know this last uh, semester when I was teaching some of my students in, in these Christian ministries programs, when the Ravi Zacharias revelations came out that you referenced, we talked in class about the idea that this is maybe sort of the final straw. There's lots of straws, I get it, but there's a watershed moment where no longer can we persist in the same sort of ways, right? If we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, there, there's this insanity right. that comes. And so yeah, as we're moving towards maybe a different expression of the kingdom in our culture, it strikes me that the people of God more often forget then they do actually get smarter along the way. And are there things, David, that you that sort of come to mind that we've forgotten about life in God's kingdom as we've adopted yeah. the celebrity culture, as we've kind of have this business approach to ministry? Like, what could we stand to remember moving forward as part of a reformation of the church? Well, you know, one thing we need to stop believing is that the, either the people in the pews or the person behind the pulpit are necessarily any better or more resistant to temptation than people we see in other walks of life outside the church. And we need, you know, so what we have often seen with a lot of these celebrities is not just, it's not just the, the case that they are really sort of revered within the church, but also they're sort of trusted to this unbelievable degree um, that, that people wouldn't be trusted in any other context. Like one of the most, you know, one of the worst aspects of un uncovering what happened with Ravi Zacharias is that 
when in 2017 there was a sexual abuse allegation and harassment allegation made against him, that the the ministry he refused to hand over his technology to the ministry when they tried to conduct an internal investigation, just refused to hand it over, mm. and and still and I talked to one of his most senior colleagues there, and they said we just didn't believe he was capable of this. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I've worked in, in, you know, spent 90 by, or the vast majority of my career in secular workplaces. And if you're subject to an, a sex abuse uh, complaint and you refuse to hand over your technology, you're gone, you're out. You know, it's not even a hard call. And yet, because he was so powerful, because he was doing so much for the gospel and because people believe they knew him so well, even when he refused to hand over and to provide adequate explanation for a number of troubling things, they just kept pushing through, not just pushing through, but even even defended him after he sued the victim of his own abuse, sued the victim of his own abuse, and then paid her a confidential settlement, sued her and then paid her. Um, and so this was a situation where people provided him with a level of trust that they never would have provided anybody in any secular circumstance. And so what ends up happening is you just flip everything upside down. There should be more accountability in the church. There should be less tolerance for wrongdoing in the church. Instead, we have a situation where if somebody reaches a certain level of prominence and power, we have less accountability and mm. more trust in them. And that's wrong. No, David, unfortunately, we have to leave it right there. I sure wish you could stay for about the next 14 hours or so, and we can continue to swim around <laughs> this conversation. It's incredibly helpful as we're being honest about what's been happening within institutional Christianity, but also encouraging about the future. Thanks for the insight, the work that you do, your willingness to go to these places that can really help us navigate these things moving forward. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for having me. We'll take a short break and wrap up this first hour of the show here on the 7th of June and preview the second hour on Mornings Without Carmen. G. Paul, David is not insightful at all about any of this. Is he? he doesn't seem to have any experience no, no, or any wisdom. Talk. He's <laughs> at all. Knows too much. Wow, we really could have stayed Ooh. in that for a bit. And, and in fact, in some ways, we're going to stay within in the top of uh, the next hour where you and I are going to chat a little bit about uh, what I discovered in some research in my classes asking young people then, what is their perception of the church related to all of these things? Mm -hmm. What do we need to see on behalf of the future? I know Linda Mintel normally joins us at the first part of, of hour two on a Monday like this, but she unfortunately had to cancel sort of at the last second. Yeah. at this point, but it gives us some space to continue this conversation. And I would love for all of you listening this morning, if you have thoughts or comments or questions just about where we are in this life cycle of the church, we'd love to hear from you at 877-933-2484. You can text yeah. it at any point and we'll address all of that. We'll take a short break here and come back with hour two on the 7th of June on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.